today's scripture reading is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance that I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of them who are still alive, though some are falling asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I, for I am the, he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to the untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. You may be seated. Well, our, our dear brother Caleb is at home recovering from surgery, and so I am, I am helping fill in. We decided to uh, pause our, our study in Matthew just so that we don't leave him too far behind. Um, well, good morning, everybody. My name is Kent. For those of you that don't know me or maybe watching this, um, my wife Tiffany and our three children are sitting here in the front row. Uh, and it is my great privilege to bring you the word of God today. I want to start off with a quote from Pastor John Newton, who you might recall, uh, wrote a number of hymns, including Amazing Grace. He says this, uh, I count it my honor and happiness that I preach to a free people who have the Bible in their hands. To your Bibles I appeal. I entreat you, I charge you, to receive nothing upon my word any further than I can prove it from the word of God, and bring every preacher and every sermon that you hear to the same standard. Let's pray. God, I just thank you for this time, for, for the blessing it is to be with my brothers and sisters at Legacy, for the, the warm fellowship that you've given to us in this church. Lord, I pray now that you would uh, be with this message that any any pieces of me would fall away and Holy Spirit, it, it would be your message. That you would press it upon hearts and minds today that none of us would leave here unchanged by your word, but instead edified by it, encouraged by it, and ready to go out and make disciples for your kingdom. Amen. So the American church is in unprecedented times. If you're somewhat of a history nerd like I am, you may recognize that since the creation of this country, Christianity, being a Christian, 
has gone from sort of a, a social norm where if you weren't part of a church, that was, that was kind of weird, right? That was, that was how we started. And then starting in, in about the early 1900s, it was still culturally advantageous to be a Christian, to be part of a church, but it wasn't, wasn't really a requirement anymore. Like being a member of a church uh, might bring some prestige to your resume. It might be like, oh, he goes to that church. He's, he's all right for all the fancy people of the church. Well, since that time, the advantage of being a Christian in America has waned to more of a, a simple indifference from the culture. As long as you weren't too outspoken about things, it was perfectly fine to identify as a Christian. You may even identify as a Christian without knowing much about Christianity at all. And I call this cultural Christianity. But now, in our lifetimes, we're entering a new phase. The cultural response to Christianity is no longer apathy, but hostility. And you see this, don't you? If cultural values in, in Christianity were on a Venn diagram, right, two overlapping circles, then, then when this country was formed, there's a lot of overlap between the cultural values and the Christian values. But now they've started growing further and further apart. That overlap is smaller and smaller to the point where being a Christian is, is largely outside of the dominant culture. This is commonplace in many areas of the world. We just prayed for one such place. You can ask a Chinese Christian what, what their Venn diagram looks like. We never had much overlap. But in America, the shrinking shared space with our culture, this is, this is new. And while we are still waiting to see just what kind of creature our country becomes as it enters post-Christian development, while we wait for that to happen, churches must and are responding to the separating of that Venn diagram. And at the risk of painting with too broad of a brush, I would say there are in general three responses. The first is, is awful, but it is, it is clearly happening, and that is the closing of church doors. Churches that do not recognize the situation we are in and fail to respond to it will be unable to weather the storm and end up dissolving permanently. These churches thrived when it was socially advantageous to be called a Christian, and they acted as sort of social hubs in that realm, providing programs that cultural Christians would come and enjoy. Now these churches find themselves unable to create any programs that draw in the numbers they used to. And indeed, the numbers that their financial spreadsheets require. Their view on what ministry was required a lot of programs, and that requires a good deal of space, and it requires a good deal of money. This model becomes unsustainable as fewer people feel the need to identify as Christians and as the most consistent givers of the church pass away. Europe is a few decades ahead of us in cultural development all the time, and they've already seen plenty of this. 
beautiful old churches are now being turned into bars, hotels, or historic sites. This is coming to America. It's, it's already here in some degree. Just recently, we were coming back from a family vacation, and we were driving through a small town. And in the center of the small town, on its own block, was this cute old little white church. Right? Um, large trees surrounded it. I have to imagine they were planted the same time that church was planted. Now, front was a brick pillar, big brick pillar, set in such a way that as you walked in to the building, you would see it. And on it was this polished granite carved sign. And it had the, the name of the church, and it had the date it was founded, 1897. Just a little bit away from that was a large wooden sign, very new, facing the street so that traffic would see it. And it read, The Sanctuary, Salon and Spa. And you could call the number on the sign for anything. Now, as sad as that is, it's not nearly so sad as the church who tries to regain common ground with the culture by abandoning the Christian principles and simply going back into the cultural principles. In response to the pressure, they are reverting back to cultural Christianity, which for our culture right now means having all the looks of spirituality but none of the offense of Christ in it. The culture is fine with spirituality. It is not fine with Christ as he describes himself in the Bible. And so they stay away from any part of Scripture that doesn't have some overlap with the culture. And these churches aren't hard to recognize. If you walk into a church and the music seems to have no real depth to the lyrics but is spiritually vague and quite emotional, if the preaching doesn't really dig deep into scripture but instead seems to have more in common with motivational speeches or self-help tips, if the number of people in the building is quite large but the number of mature believers is quite small, if they stay away from clear doctrinal statements in favor of ambiguities, you have likely found this sort of church. Many of these churches would be better served and better serve God by being like the first churches I mentioned in closing my verse. But instead, they will grow in attendance as the cultural Christian leaves the mid-sized church for the one with better production value. All oh, that seems really, really grim. Really grim. Um, there is a third response, though, and it is the response of the New Testament church. It is the response of the early church, the church in its first 400 years in particular. In this time, the Venn diagram between the church and the culture had no overlap. All right? It was extremely hostile to the church, and yet the church grew exponentially. Churches in country after country came together, not united by a building, not composed of, of casual or cultural Christians, but of Christians earnestly giving all their lives to the cause of Christ. Now, how is this possible? How did they glorify God and fulfill the Great Commission in the face of such hostility? I mean, especially in the time of, of the apostles themselves, they had no written New Testament. Think about that. No written New Testament. 
The answer is elegantly simple. They preach the gospel. They preach the gospel. The rapid growth of the early church in a hostile culture was found in a single solitary fact, and that is that Jesus Christ died and rose again. He bore the punishment for sin on the cross, and his resurrection is proof of satisfying the wrath of God for all who trust in Christ. That's it. For far too long, our churches have been distracted. We have been distracted by meaningless metrics, such as how many people are in the seats and how much money we're bringing in. We have been distracted uh, by, by programs trying to provide services to a consumer as if the church were a business venture and the members a handful of salesmen trying to pitch a product. Boy, if Baptists were guilty of anything I've said this morning, it's that one. We are a programmatic denomination. We've been distracted by worldly qualifications. We ask things like, does our pastor have the right degree, rather than, does our pastor have the right heart? You want to know why the world is so confused on what the gospel is, and why the church seems to have so little influence over the culture? church just has to look in the mirror for that. The world is confused about Christianity because many professing Christians are confused on what Christianity is. And then they turn their churches into poorly run entertainment venues and wonder why the country has gone astray and no one comes to church anymore. You hear me loud and clear right now? If we want to be churches that are faithful to our Lord and Savior and able to exist in this world, we need to bring our focus back to the gospel. If we want to make disciples like the early church did, there is no other way than the gospel. And there is a world of genuine Christians out there who desperately need a gospel-centered church, and they search for one and they cannot find it. But we can be that fellowship of believers, but we must know the gospel. There's no substitute. And God has laid a burden on my heart to equip the saints to do just that. So for the next four weeks, we're going to do a deep dive into the gospel. If you or someone you know has, has never heard the gospel clearly given, be here. Invite them here. If you are a Christian but have never been very good at explaining just what the gospel is, well, take good notes because at the end of these weeks, you'll be able to do just that. And Christ makes no exceptions for any Christians. We're, we're all tasked to be able to give a reason for the hope within us. Last time I'll say it, the key to making disciples isn't in a better program, cooler music, or anything else other than the gospel. And this is the business we are in. Make no mistake, God will not be mocked. We will reap what we sow. And without the gospel at the center of our lives, both individually and corporately, we ought not expect anything resembling a good harvest. God has told us directly in his word, in Romans 10, that the way he deems to save people and grow his church is through the telling of the gospel. I remember the story of a man, I, I think he was Buddhist initially, and then he converted to Christianity. And he said something along the lines of, why don't Christians tell people what they have? 
They don't have just made-up stories or, or some kind of generic moral code. They have the entire story of the universe from beginning to end and the means of salvation inside of it. Tell people that. There is power in the gospel. Transforming, reviving, mighty power. There is hope for the sinner, hope for the church, peace for the restless, healing for the brokenhearted. And the gospel is a balm for every wound and our greatest needs met. Courage supplied in the hour of need. If we would just wake up each morning, preach the gospel to ourselves, and then don't let stop there, but go out and live as if the gospel were true. We'd very quickly see we don't need a new program. We don't need different music. We need the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. But to share the gospel, you must know it. And I know of no better place to begin uh, than the beginning. So open up your Bibles with me. Let's go to Genesis 1. Chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. I was just talking with Tiffany about this, this passage the other week. I, I love its clarity. Is there any doubt what a day is to you? Morning, evening, sunrise, sunset. That's besides the point. The gospel begins with understanding who God is, understanding his glory. I want to warn you here that you cannot learn more about the person of God and remain the same. The information we are going to cover will have an effect on your life. God is like a fire. The closer you approach it, the more you feel the light, the more you feel the heat. And if you don't feel that heat, you've not yet approached it. We spend a good deal of time talking about God, but, but rarely do we spend time considering just who he is. The foundation to all the rest of the understanding we have of our world lies in who we think God is. That is the foundation of the Christian worldview. A.W. Tozer says this wonderfully. He says, the low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. The decline of the knowledge of the holy has brought on our troubles. Now, I've already used a bunch of my time, and I already started with limited time. So I want to consider who God is and his glory in just two points. So in your notes, we'll have two points. And if I had to choose just two words to describe who God is, they would be holy and creator. Holy and creator. So first, we'll discuss what it means when we say God is holy. Talk about a word we use a lot and don't fully grasp. The simple definition of holy is, is to be set apart. Well, that is, that is certainly true of God. I, I just think it's a little bit of an understatement. I mean, when I say God is holy, I don't just mean he is different or set apart or special. 
I mean, there is none like him. None. I mean, let's think of God in relation to ourselves for a moment. You and I have some strength. We can, we can grasp things. We can hold on to them. We can affect the objects around us to some degree. I might not be able to lift a car. No surprise looking at my physique. Uh, but I could push my Bible off of this pulpit. I could do that. I've noticed as I've gotten older, my strength has changed. Uh, in some ways, I've, I've gotten stronger. Uh, like my grip is better than it used to be. I try to walk. But in most ways, I've gotten weaker. I can't do all the things I used to do. I spend my strength more easily, and then it takes me longer to recover it than I used to. God is not like that. God's strength is perfect strength. There is none as strong as he is. If there were, that thing would be God. He would be stronger than God. That's God. No, God is the strongest. There is nothing his strength could not overcome. And unlike us, he does not grow tired, as Isaiah 40 would tell you. He does not need time to recover. Consequently, he does not rest. When God spoke the universe into existence, it cost him nothing in terms of energy. We call this perfect strength God's omnipotence. Or consider this. Look, look back at your Bibles in Genesis chapter 1, and, and let's go to verse 14. God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens, to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. Let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. So here God speaks and the stars are made. And it's amazing how those of us familiar with the creation account can read that and just glaze over it and be like, yep, God made stars moving on. Have you, ever, have you ever considered the reality of that? Like, slow down and think about what you know of, of science in the world around you. Do you know that uh, scientists say the time it takes for the light to get from a star, the furthest one that we can see, to us is huge? I mean, wager a guess on that. I had to Google it. I'm not that smart. Scientists say that distance is measured in five billion light years. Five billion light years. God spoke and put a star there. Now that number is so big, it's meaningless to me. But when God spoke the stars into existence, he didn't simply hang a picture of a star in a sky. No, simply speaking, he went five billion light years this way, built a star, and then spanned the empty space gap between that star and the earth with light waves so that you could instantly see that star. And he did it for every star in the sky at once, just speaking. That number that I can barely understand because it's so big, God just filled in an instant. He did it with all the stars. Consider this, you and I may live for a while, but God will always exist and has always existed. There was never a time where God was not. 
And on top of that, never a time where his strength or other attributes were not perfect. As he is today, he has always been. In fact, God exists outside of time. God created time. He himself is not bound to it. Focus as much as you can on this for just a moment. And I, I want you to just pause and, and think about your senses. Think about your, your sense of touch, the things you're hearing right now, the things you're seeing, right? The warmth in the room. Think of everything you're aware of in this moment. All of your senses are defining this moment for you. That is what all of time is like for God. It is one eternal moment. He sees the beginning and he sees the end as clearly as you see this moment and more clearly. For he lacks no knowledge of any of it. All of time is God's moment. Isaiah 46 says, I am God and there is none like me. I declare the end from the beginning. And that already hurts my head, but if you consider this with me for a moment, think, think about movement, right? Movement. When I move my hand from here to here, we understand it's moving because we watch it go from a point A to point B over a certain span of time. Movement is wrapped up in time. God exists outside of time. So how does he move? How does, how does he move? And this is what we call the, the spirituality of God. He's not bound to time and space and body like we are. Spirituality, eternality, strength. These are only some of the attributes of God. There are others that we don't have any resemblance with. God is omnipresent. That means he is everywhere. But more than that, he is everywhere in his fullness. Let me explain. When you make toast, I like toast. Put it in, toast pops, and then you're going to butter it. Because everybody loves butter. You get a chunk of butter on your knife and you're spreading it over the toast. And as you spread it, the amount on your knife goes down, and the amount on the bread is thinned out as it covers that surface area, right? It is not so with God. God is everywhere. Imagine if you were to spread that butter, and the amount of, uh, on your knife never got smaller. He is not thinned out as he fills the universe. All of him is everywhere at once. The psalmist declares, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? And in analyzing that, he comes up with the answer of nowhere. There is nowhere I can go where God is not. Well, this just begins to scratch the surface of God's holiness. And only in my simple words. Great work has been done on this much more beautifully. And this is to say nothing of the fact that God exists as Trinity if you really want to be silenced by the awesomeness of God, spend some time dwelling and studying the Trinity. The Son of God, the Spirit of God, the second and third persons of the Trinity are of the same essence of God the Father. So everything I just said about God the Father, each one of those attributes belongs to the rest of the Trinity. Now why is all of this 
so hard to grasp? Why does even a brief consideration of the holiness of God make our heads spin? It is because he is God and we are not God. Which brings me to my second main point. Second word that I would use to describe God, and, and that is creator. Creator. The triune God is the creator of everyone and everything. Nothing exists except through him and by his will. This makes sense when you think back to the fact that he is eternal. There is never a time when he was not, which means everything else he created. And we often think of creation like a pyramid, where at the top you have God, and you have angels, and then you have like humans, and then you have pretty animals, ugly animals, cats, and then worms <laughs> underneath that. And, and it's this spectrum of, of perfectness, right? That is not how this works. That is, that is faulty thinking. God is over here, completely separate from all of his creation over here. There is a lot more in common between the angel and the worm than there is the angel and God. They are much closer together. God is completely separate from his creation. This fundamental difference is important because as creator, God has rights that we do not have. He is the ruler of all creation by default. And we are those who are ruled. All of creation is his to do whatever he wants with. You see, God is the all-powerful, all-knowing, present everywhere, sovereign king of his creation. John in Revelation describes the worship of God in heaven. He does it in, in chapter 4, verse 11, when he declares that God is worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Now this creator status of God, this, this kingship of him would be an awful thing if he were evil. If he lied and he cheated. But he doesn't. His character is also perfect. He is truthful. He cannot lie. So he can be trusted in all things. He is perfectly righteous. Never doing bad things and never letting bad people go unpunished. That's, that's in other places, Psalm 97.2. He loves perfectly. Think about the love of God for a moment. Think about how we just described God's power, his eternality, and then begin to apply those same concepts to just how he might love. Think back to the stars that he placed in the sky, right? He filled the whole void with the light waves so that we can see them, all that. Millions of stars, so distant, so spread out. Psalm 147 tells us he did not just create random balls of light, but that he knows each one by name. By name, God named the stars. There is 
personal care, a, a personal concern, a love expressed in myth, in, in the naming of these stars. And he extends that love to each and every one of the stars. Consider for a moment that the world he made is so beautiful. It doesn't have to be beautiful. He didn't have to make a beautiful world. Beauty is so hard to explain apart from the love of God. Consider music. If you look up atheist or evolutionary explanations for why music exists, why humans enjoy music, the answers range from silly to sad and everywhere in between. On the silly end of the spectrum is the idea that when we were still monkeys and just descended out of the trees, walking on the forest floor for the first time, they got attacked by a lot of predators. And so a defense mechanism, mechanism that they came up with to avoid being attacked by predators was they would walk in step so that they made less and less noise on the jungle floor and thus weren't as attacked as much. And there you have it, rhythm was born by walking in sync. I imagine jazz was just a few years later. And I kid you not, if, if you look it up, go home and Google it, that is the leading theory. That's the most plausible one that they have. On the sad end of the spectrum, one theory says that music is simply a meaningless byproduct of the evolutionary process. It has no purpose, no meaning, is just a random outcome of other purposeful evolutionary traits. And we just happen to find enjoyment in it. The author calls that auditory cheesecake mental junk food. Now this is, this is not silly. This is tragic. Brothers and sisters, music is a gift from a loving God who designed the world so that we may enjoy it under his care rather than survive it if we are the fittest. Our God is a God who sings. If you read the prophet Zephaniah, you'll see that God sings over his people. And he gave us the gift of being able to reciprocate that, which is a beautiful demonstration of love. And it brings an immense amount of meaning to music. But when you divorce a holy creator from his creation, beauty is meaningless. And life is dreary. God created everyone and everything not out of any kind of necessity, as if he were lonely and he needed friends. No, God is complete in his triune self. God created out of his good pleasure and sustains his creation because he is good. When we say God is good, we don't mean that we have this concept of good and God checks those boxes. He fulfills those things. When I say God is good, I mean the only concept of good that we can possibly have is set by God. He defines what good is. He is the measure of goodness. 
James says this beautifully. Let's just turn to James. We're going to get almost to the complete other side of your Bible. We're going to go past Paul's letters. And we're just coming on the other side of Hebrews. James. James 1, verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. James says he is the Father of lights. This means he is all things good. There is no darkness found in him, no bad, and there is no shadow that shifts around him as if he changes in his goodness. His goodness is constant. God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. Without God being the definition of what is good, there is no absolute morality. There is no standard by which to judge right and wrong, and this is just another untenable position that the culture tries to hold apart from God. And his goodness and love means he is perfectly righteous as well. Perfectly just. He does not reward bad behavior, nor does he punish good behavior. Nor is he ever deceived about which is which. The Bible makes it plain that by no means will God let the wicked go unpunished. Exodus 34 promises he does not. He is perfectly just, and he administers justice perfectly. If he were not righteous, if he could not do that, he would not be God. So now, just just as we close, I have to ask, is your character perfectly righteous? Perfectly good? Have you always done what is right in the eyes of God? If you have not, then you have partaken in what we call sin, and we have a major problem. Because as I just said, this all-powerful, all-knowing, sovereign king of the universe must punish you for that sin if he is going to be righteous. And it is the sin that we will turn next week. Maybe, maybe somebody is watching this afterwards, or somebody in here even. Their soul is troubled by that idea, and, and they don't want to wait another week to find out. That's fine. You can come talk to me afterwards. I'd, I'd very happily tell you about sin in Christ. Maybe you're listening to this, and your soul isn't troubled at all. Maybe you're listening to this, and, and you're ready to write it off as something superstitious, unscientific, uncultured, unlearned. My friend, the Bible knows you. It says you know deep in your heart that you have a holy creator, that you can sense this fact by observing the world around you, that you know you are connected to him somehow, and that something between you and him isn't right but you're suppressing that thought. 
you mask it from the busyness of everyday life. You pretend the spiritual doesn't exist because it's not tangible, like the physical reality around you. And so you don't recognize this call. You've, you've hardened yourself against it. My friend, seek God while he may be found. I want to leave you with a quote from, from a very popular work of fiction called The Blood Meridian, which uh, I'm sure many of you read in school. But the story is set just before the Civil War. So you know, take yourself to the era of, of cowboys in, in the Wild West. One of the characters is, is a priest uh, sitting beside this, this gruff teenage kid um, who's, who's involved in, in like cowboy gangs sort of thing. And this is, this is the conversation you find them in. The priest says to the kid, God speaks in the least of creatures. And the kid thought him to mean birds or things that crawl. But the priest, watching, his head slightly cocked, said, No man is given leave of that voice. And the kid spat in the fire, bent to his work, and said, I ain't heard any voice. And the priest replied, when it stops, you'll know you heard it all your life. Let's pray. Well, Father, we, we praise you for who you are, for all the things that, that your Bible has revealed to us that your word tells us about you. As just creatures, we, we stand in awe of who you are. And we give you praise because you are worthy of it, because you created all things. We pray that the, the knowledge of you and, and who you are would not uh, become mundane to us just because we've, we've studied it since we were young but instead that we would consider these things deeply and, and the reality of what they are. And in doing so, would fall in awe of you afresh, new. Lord Jesus, help us to go out into the world, into the world that... that has convinced themselves, by and large, there is no God. Let us show them that, that in their hearts they know. They know there is. And in that, Lord, let us show them a Savior who can save them from nowhere. We ask these things for Christ's sake. Now we come to the Lord's Supper, as we do each week. Uh, I ask that you do as the Bible asks you to do, which is examine yourself before you take it. Take this quiet time prior to the elements and, and just examine yourself. Repent of sin in your life. If there is sin that you know you must address, you might be best served leaving the supper where it is and going and handling it. There is no forgiveness in the elements themselves. It's bread. It's juice. 
These are symbols of a covenant, like a wedding ring. Beloved, if you are married to Christ, if your life is his, if you know what it is to be in the new covenant with him, can I invite you in a moment to come and hold the sign of that covenant in your hands? Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus Christ, we come now to, to your table to be reminded of your sacrifice. To be reminded of, of your body on the cross and the severity that sin deserves. We praise you for creating a new covenant based on your goodness, your righteousness. And ask that when we come again, we might all be found in you and doing your work. Let these elements be a reminder of that. Amen. In Matthew 26, 26, Christ says, Take, eat, this is my body. And then Christ says, Taking the cup, drink of it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins.